Uh, welcome, so glad you're here. Again, whether you're a first-time guest or you're, you're back, you haven't been here in a while, or you're joining us on our podcast today. This morning we, just, we begin a brand new two-week short series that's going to take us to Easter called True Religion, and we're looking at what it means, at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, based out of James chapter 1, and uh, you'll hear from that, uh, about, from that text next week. But we're looking at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and actually the answer that our scripture passage gives us this morning about what it means to be a follower of Jesus is something startling in particular. What is it? Well, let's look at the passage on which the teaching is based. It's from Isaiah chapter 58. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and yet you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers." Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of a yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls. Restorer of streets with dwellings, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. That's God's word to us. Now, let me ask, how many of you in here, if you work, have a business card? Show of hands here real quick. Business card. Got a business card? Yeah. What do you, what do you put on your, on your business card, right? On your, your calling card, as, it, as it's known. A lot of you put, of course, your name. Uh, you put your address, right? Maybe some contact information. Uh, but really, you put on there the thing that you're most known for, or really your title. Now, I've got my business card here, as, it's, uh, as it looks here. And though I do a, a number of things, and I, and I speak, 
and I teach and I train and I lead in a number of environments, whenever I'm asked to speak or communicate, I always ask to be introduced by my title here. And it's simply this. It's just lead pastor at Mosaic Church. And that's what I ask to be introduced by. Why? Well, it's because that's the thing that I do that's closest to my heart. And it's the thing that I want to be known for. All right. Now, let's ask, what if God had a calling card? What title would he put on it? What, what, what would his title be? Well, in a sense, he's actually answered that for us through one word that appears over 400 times in the Old Testament. And that word is the word mishpat, and it simply means justice. And mishpat is the title over and over. The word that God puts on his divine business card. In a sense, that's what his title is. Consider these scriptures here. Just a few. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and mishpat, or justice, are the foundation of your throne. Meaning if justice goes away, God goes away. Psalm 33, 5, the Lord loves what? What does God love? Righteousness and mishpat. Yeah, justice. Third one, Psalm 146, 7, the Lord executes, he brings about, he makes happen what? Justice, mishpat, for who? The oppressed, yeah. In other words, there are many things that the God of the Bible cares about. Many things he shows us and tells us and speaks to us. Many things he cares about besides this. But if there were one thing I believe that's closest to his heart, it's this right here. So let's this morning peer into the heart of God in this passage and see if we can't get a deep look into what the Bible says that Bible justice looks like. Let's see if we can't get a little closer to understanding why in the world God would put this on his divine business card. All right, so let's look at three parts of the passage this morning. Let's look at first, the call to justice, second, the meaning of justice, and finally, how to become people who do justice. All right, let's begin here. Number one, look at simply at the call to justice and ask, what in the world is happening? What's going on here in Isaiah 58? Well, we see God is describing a certain group of people. It says this, for day after day, they seek me out. So God's describing a group of people who perhaps read their Bibles or Hebrew Bibles every day. They, they go to temple weekly. They, they give, they offer their sacrifices. They fast even to get closer to God. And then God sums up that kind of person, those kind of people like this. He says, they seem, this is Bible irony here in the, in the Hebrew, they seem eager to know my ways. They seem eager for God to come near them. He says, on the surface, it looks like they really do want to know me. They spend a lot of time asking me to come near them. They, it looks like they want to be in my presence. Hmm. But verse 1 tells us this about that same group of people. It says, they are, as God says, in rebellion. In rebellion. I mean, what in the world is this? What's going on? And because the people here are in rebellion, it goes on to say that God is not answering their prayers. Now, we don't really know what they're asking for, what their prayers are, but it doesn't really matter. There's bad things happening to them, and they're crying out. They're saying, God, what is going on? We have prayed. We've gone to church. We've read our Bibles. We're not sinning, right, overtly. Why aren't you listening to us? And God's response here is actually is startling. Here's what he says. He says, let me tell you, what a real fast really is, what real worship is. He says it's to do justice, to do justice. He says, quote, a real fast is to loose the chains of injustice, 
untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Now, God is saying something here that's startling and honestly a bit offensive. A bit offensive here if you can see it. He's saying this. I don't want you, speaking to these people, okay, I don't want you to fast if your fasting doesn't include this. I don't want your spirituality if your spirituality doesn't include this. Wow. Wow. Why is this? Listen, that's what he's saying. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. I wish there were. All right. Now, the Bible has a long tradition of this kind of teaching. Look at Proverbs 14. It says, if you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. Proverbs 19, if you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. You say, well, man, Morgan, that's the Old Testament right now. This is the Bible. This is the whole Bible. And in one of his most famous parables, the parable about the sheep and the goats, Jesus himself constructs, most scholars believe, that parable straight out of Isaiah 58. And Jesus says in that parable, this is what he will say to those he casts into hell. That's what he says. He says, they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or in sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Whatever you did not do for them, you did not do for me. In other words, he's saying, if you do not love the poor... You don't love me. The way you treat the poor shows how you're really treating me. In other words, Jesus is saying that a deeply sensitive social conscience is the inevitable sign of true faith. To love the poor is to love Jesus, and the Bible calls us to do that. That's the call to justice. That's number one. It's pretty straight ahead and tough. That's the call to justice, to do justice. Now, before we move on to number two, let me just ask both Christians And non-Christians in here, the same question this morning, because I know we always have both in here. Many of you, of course, most of you are Christians. But some we have every week that are wrestling with Christianity, exploring that. Your friends have brought you here. Maybe you promise you get to sit next to their cute friend, and we're all for that. All right. The Bible says that a bribe opens the heart. Okay, anyway, I've misinterpreted that one. Do you know, here's here's the question. Do you understand that this is what's at the heart of biblical faith? This is at the heart of whatever this morning in here for everyone, whatever you've accepted or whatever you've rejected. If you've rejected the God of the Bible, do you understand that you've rejected the true source of what justice is? And if you've accepted the God of the Bible, do you even understand what you've gotten yourself into? Do you even know who you've fallen in love with? Throughout the Bible, we've seen in our short time, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets, and the Gospels, in the mouth of Jesus, we say God saying this, if you really love me, you would do justice. You would do justice. He's saying love for me and love for justice go hand in hand. Now, I know some of you may be squirming a bit like I was when I read these and studied these, but all I can say is, hold on. It's going to get a bit worse before it gets better. (laughs) Let's ask. Now, transition. Why would love for God and a love for justice go hand in hand? Number two, it's because of the meaning of justice. What justice means. It's because of what God means 
when he talks about justice. And what he means is right here in verse 7. It's remarkable. I would even go so far as to say it's unheard of. This is what verse 7 of Isaiah 58 says. He says, justice is to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. God's saying this, look at the poor wanderer. This is a word here that can, that can mean either just a poor person in your city or a, a poor person, almost like a vagrant, someone wandering through your city. And God is saying, this is a startling thing he's saying. He's saying that person, the vagrant, is your own family, is your own flesh and blood. What's he saying? He's saying that all you humans are fundamentally interconnected to each other. Why is this? All right, well, I've got to say this. Well, scholar after scholar, person after person who studies the Bible, systematic theology, all says and knows that the Bible is built on something that's called shalom. It's the idea of shalom is kind of the backdrop to the whole Bible. Shalom, you may know the word in Hebrew means peace, yes, but it also means something more than peace. God made the world, for example, to be like a fabric. Imagine I had a table here. I've got threads. I've got fabric, uh, strings that are lying in front of me. They're really weak all by themselves. But if I were to take those same threads, those same strings, and weave them together uh, over and under and above and beneath and all throughout now, things that are independently weak can become collectively strong. And God made the world to work like that in every kind of way, to put what's called shalom into our hearts, lives, and in our cities. And so let me just give you three kinds of examples of how uh, ways things can be interwoven, three kinds of shalom, just again by way of speaking here. Number one, there's what's called physical shalom. Uh, uh, When your body is working well, right, you experience health, and that's nice. But if all you do every day is weave your body together with cigarettes and donuts and milkshakes, What's going to happen? All right, your body over time just may not experience shalom. (laughs) Shalom. But if you weave it together, in general, with proper exercise, diet, rest, things are going to go well, right? Number two, there's what's called psychological shalom. When uh, when your conscience, when your reason, uh, when your thoughts, your feelings, they all work together. They're in their proper place. You have internal shalom. But if your feelings, for example, overcome your conscience and you really, really want something, And you take that when you know you shouldn't, you experience what? Guilt. Your shalom, your peace is gone. Why? Because things aren't working together. There's all kinds of ways for psychological shalom to manifest or a lack of it uh, through guilt, anger, insecurity, depression, so to speak. Finally, there's what's called social shalom. Uh, When people, when you and I, when people, when we have money, right, when we have blessings or or resources, we have a great family perhaps, and we, we plunge those things back into human community, things go well, right? Citizens' lives are better, the parks are great, uh, our nation's great, uh, houses are great, schools are great. We have social shalom, but when we, some of us, when we have resources and we don't plunge those and weave those into human community, social shalom breaks down. There's a movie that uh, that, uh, many of us watch every year uh, that shows us what social shalom ought to look like. Uh, What movie does Americans do Americans? Do Americans typically rewatch every year at Christmas? I've heard varying debates here. Some of you may have said Elf. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. Although Elf is a justice movie, may I add? Uh, you know, when, uh, when Buddy tells that guy to, you know, to get off his throne of lies. What's <laughs> Buddy's doing justice. All right, no. 
What I mean to talk about is the classic It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, my wife got it correct. You're correct. We meet Jimmy Stewart's character as George Bailey, and all his life, George Bailey has been an advocate for the poor uh, in the, a town called Bedford Falls, even to his own hurt, even to his own detriment. Time after time, George Bailey has put his reputation and his resources on the line for those in need. But something happens to him in the story, and, and he wishes, what, that he would, had never been born. And then in comes who? It's Clarence the Angel, right, who shows George Bailey what the world would be like if George Bailey had never been born. And what does George Bailey see now? Well, he sees not Bedford Falls, but he sees the same town, but in a different light. Bedford Falls has become not the healthy, shalom-filled place that it was. It becomes Potterville, right? Not named after Harry Potter, but after Mr. Potter, right? The evil banker who's just trying to squeeze every last dollar he can out of his business, of his tenants, out of the community. Bedford Falls has fallen apart. But what made the difference between Bedford Falls and Potterville? Hmm? One man, one life, doing shalom. Doing shalom, doing justice. And that's what the Bible says that Jesus has come to enable us to do. To be the one person, the one life, perhaps the one church that brings shalom in. It makes the difference between Potterville and Bedford Falls. Bedford Falls is the way things ought to be. And that's what shalom is. That's what shalom is, the way things ought to be. Not just peace, not just people not fighting, but the way things ought to be. So how should we ask them, we should ask them, how should things look for that group? How should things look for that school? How should things look for my neighborhood? The way things ought to be, that's what shalom is. Shalom says, pour your life in until it gets there. And of course, now you begin to realize how different this is from our Western idea of justice. When many of us think of justice, we think of uh, living just lives, right? A life that's just. We think of not doing bad things. We're a just person because perhaps we don't break the law. But that's only one half of the coin when it comes to Bible justice. Bible justice, Bible shalom has a second side to it. Doing justice or being a just person in a Bible sense isn't just not doing bad things to one another, but justice, and this is where it gets tough, especially for Americans, Bible justice actually obligates us to do good things, right things, just things for those who cannot do them for themselves. And all of this is put together. We see all these concepts come together. Psalm 34, 14, it says, turn from evil, right? Don't do bad things. That's good. But, and yet, and do good. Seek what? Peace. Shalom. What does shalom come from? Both those things. Yes, not doing wrong things, but also doing good. It's the word tov there, what you ought to be doing. And this is where the Bible honestly begins to sound kind of like a liberal social or a liberal, liberal political agenda, right? But it's not. Because of the message today, we're on what the Bible says about the family, what it says about sex or gender or abortion. You may think, man, this sounds like a conservative political agenda, but it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. If the Bible really is the word of God, wouldn't it make sense that it just may not fit in 21st century American, two, a two-party system, right? 
It may just be bigger than that. It's to shake off political party concepts when we come into God's church and approach the Bible on any subject. And I'd like to think that we as a church would rather take our cues about justice and sex from what Micah and Isaiah and Jesus say rather than what Rush Limbaugh or Rachel Maddow says on any subject. All right, So let's shake off your political suspicions for a moment and just look at what the text tells us. All right. To do Bible justice, to create shalom, means to go to where the fabric is breaking, where there's a breach uh, in, the, in the whole of the world, where darkness is coming through, and then put all of your spiritual antibodies in that place to heal it, to become a repairer of the breach. And if we don't do that, Isaiah 58 says, it's not just not fair. It's not just. It's not just. Wait a minute, Morgan, are you saying, uh, are you saying I'm unjust because of things I don't do? Only if Isaiah 58 is God's word. <laughs> he tells those people, you're unjust. You're unjust because of the things you're not doing. You're, you're worshiping me. You're coming to church. You're giving. You're fasting, which for most of us would probably, you know, it's an it's a unheard of kind of thing that you're fasting. He says, no, God says you're in rebellion. Because you're not doing justice. And listen, I understand that people have a hard time with this. I have a hard time with this. Actually, the point of the passage is that God's people have always had a hard time with this. That's what it's showing us. Think about the fact in this city, for example, that children uh, are growing up in communities where by the time they're 14, 15, 16, because of uh, the families maybe that they're from, different factors in their lives, by the time they're that age, they're functionally illiterate. They can't read, they can't write, and today in an increasingly information-oriented age, you know this, if you can't read or write by that time, you're essentially locked into a cycle of poverty that unless something dramatic intervenes, you're locked into a cycle of poverty the rest of your life, okay? That's a fact. Now let's ask, why is that happening? Okay, case study here. Why is it happening? It's happening right now in our city to perhaps thousands of students. Why? Well, there's the liberal analysis, There's the conservative analysis. The liberal analysis says, well, this is happening because of unjust social structures. You hear that a lot? And the conservative analysis is because it's it's because of the breakdown of the family. Okay? But no one is saying it's the kid's fault. No one is saying it's the kid's fault. Is it the fault of our social structures? Perhaps. Maybe. Is it the fault of individuals and their dysfunctional families and choices and sins? Maybe. Probably. But is it the kid's fault? No. No one says the seven or eight-year-old should be wise enough to say, you know what, I'm considering relocating to a better school district where my odds for getting a college education will be dramatically increased. No one's saying that seven or eight-year-old ought to go to their parents and say, Mom, Dad, I'm considering suing you for parental malpractice. Uh, You don't put down the the video games. You don't turn off the television. You never read to me. You know, I'm out of here. No one's saying the kid should pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Or that it's his fault. So what can we do about it, right? Well, there are many ways. There are many ways. Many ways. But there's one small way in which actually this church is doing something. I'm going to tell you a story here. And let me tell you something, two things before I tell you this story. Number one, it's about me. I don't see myself as a hero here, the Savior. I don't see myself as the white Savior, okay, if you're familiar with that kind of concept or narrative. Down the street here at Live Oak Elementary, there's a little eight-year-old boy, African-American, lives in an apartment with his mother and his brother and a revolving door of men she brings through. The reason these men are coming through is his father, she was married, dropped dead of a heart attack one morning before school in front of his brothers as they were getting ready for school. The only other man really in his life, his grandfather, died about a year later. 
And now, because there's no books in the home, and his mom leaves to play and hustle pool, and sits around all afternoon and plays Grand Theft Auto. You know, that game at the age of eight. When I met him three years ago, I was assigned to be his mentor, and he couldn't read. He couldn't read functionally illiterate. He was on his way to becoming a statistic. So what did I do? I did what every mentor, again, there's no heroism of my own. I didn't ask him. He was assigned to him, okay? But I did pray. I said, Lord, put me with the right kid. I did what every mentor would do. And what you would do if you were in my place. I started reading him The Hobbit. <laughs> ah, he wasn't interested in first. The Hob what? You know? But I dropped down into my best movie narrator trailer guy voice. And I said, it's a book about a world where a powerful wizard goes on an epic journey along with brave dwarves to rescue a pile of enchanted gold from a wicked and fire-breathing dragon. But you probably wouldn't be interested in hearing about that. <laughs> he said, no, no, I would, I would, I would. So I began to read to him week in and week out. And now just this past year, he tested not at but above his grade level. At above his grade level. And I am as proud of that as anything I've ever done in my life. It's a small thing. Listen, what am I doing? It's an act. Honestly, it's activism in a small way. I'm creating shalom. And not because I'm a hero. It's because I owe him that. I owe him that. I owe him that. Now, let me ask you. Are you feeling guilty yet? <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you on the guilt? No, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't answer that. Let me just say, over my, over my years in ministry, I have discovered I have used guilt a lot. And for that, I apologize to you uh, today if that's ever, you've ever been the recipient. I've tried to get guilt to, to get people to do the things I think are good. But I've come to understand, and you know this, that guilt eventually blows over. People just, you know, when they feel guilty, they, they hold on tight, they sit there longer, they wait for the preacher's storm to pass, and then they, they go on with their lives, right? Guilt will never be enough to motivate us to become men and women, people who are able to do justice and bring shalom. So stop the guilt. I'm sure you feel guilty. All right, we're going to move on. Let's just simply ask, number three, what can, though, what can make us people who do justice? And to answer that, let me just start with another question. Why would Jesus say that if you really loved him, you would have a relationship? You would love the poor. Why would he say that? All right? If you take Isaiah 58 and Matthew 25, it's easy for people to make a big mistake about, about the big point. Because here's God, then Jesus saying, man, worship services, check. You know, fasting, check. Giving money, check. Faithful to your wife, check. Social justice, you're not doing enough of that. And if you hear that and think, oh, my list just wasn't long enough. Right? I've got to add something else in now. And now if I do that, God will love me and bless me and we'll be cool. And if you think that and hear that, you're missing the whole point. Because Isaiah 58 is actually critiquing that kind of thought. Back in verses 2 and 3, what are the people saying? They're saying, God, look at us. Man, we've been doing it. Man, we've been faithful. We've been giving. We've been coming. We've been fasting. And you're not answering our prayers. What's wrong with you, God? You owe us. See? What that, shows, what that shows is they were only obeying God out of guilt and fear and maybe pride in the first place. And the selfishness of the human heart, which, of course, by the way, is the human heart's default mode, and the thing that's making the world the unjust mess it is, will never change through appealing to guilt or fear or pride. And let me just try to show you why. All right, Appealing to self-centeredness and fear and pride looks a lot like how... I used to parent my children. 
like how I've tried to get my kids to be good. Carrie and I, mostly me, used to try to use fear and pride to make them honest kids. Especially fear, man, that's a good one. It's temporarily effective. We say, kids, don't lie. Why? Because if you do lie, things will go badly for you, right? Uh, Your life won't be what you want it to be. In other words, don't lie because your life's all about you, right? And there's a secular form of fear for adults, too, and you can see it in our nation's law and business schools. In the Harvard Ethics Business class, they'll tell you, you need to be honest, you need to obey the law, don't lie, because if you do, you could go to jail, and your life could be over. Uh, you know, you'll end up on the front page of the paper, and you don't want that. Well, that's fear. And then, of course, there's pride. We also appeal to that to get people to do right things. We say, listen, do what's right and don't lie because you don't want to be a bad person like those other kind of people. We're better than that. You're, a, you're better than that. Our family is better than that. Well, what are, what are we using there? Pride, right? Judgmentalism to restrain the heart. But why do people lie in the first place? fear and pride. They're afraid of what people will think if they really told the truth, fear. And then they, don't, they, they, they lie because of pride. They think, man, I can do whatever I want to, right? I'm great how I am. So then you grow up and you embezzle your fudge, your tax return, or you're, you're unfaithful to your wife, or you go to jail and you think, man, how did I end up here? I wasn't raised to be this way. Yes, you were. You've had fear and pride inherently growing in your moral life. Listen, fear and pride and guilt, they don't change the heart. They just temporarily jury-rig the heart. They don't come out how it ought to be in the end. So if fear and guilt and pride won't change us and make us value justice, what will? And here's your answer. Beauty beauty. Something so big, something so wonderful, something so glorious and mind-blowingly stunning, it blows out fear and guilt and pride. Look at the very end of the passage. God tells us, Isaiah 58, it says, when the Sabbath day you do out of what? Delight. Then you'll find your joy in the Lord. God is saying doing justice will be a joy when you find me a delight. When you find me a delight. God is saying when you find me beautiful. That'll change you. That'll change you. Why? Because that's just what beauty does. And when I was a child, maybe like some of you, uh, I took piano lessons for years. My piano teacher maybe learned so many sonatas by Mozart. Uh, I got sick of them. Uh, but I did. I learned them. Why? Out of a bit of, you know, duty and fear. My parents said, you know, we're putting money into your piano lessons. You better learn them, right? And then years later in college, I took a music appreciation course and up shows Mr. Mozart again. So why did I study Mozart now? Well, I listened to him to get an A. Why? So I could get a good GPA. Why? To get a good job. Why? To make money. So in other words, I listen to Mozart to make money, right? But today, I spend my own money to listen to him. No one makes me. Why? It doesn't get me anything. I'm not, in a sense, richer for buying and listening to Mozart. I'm, in a sense, poor. But why? Because it's beautiful, right? You will pay. We pay for beauty. And what does it mean to be beautiful? Beauty is something that's beautiful in and of itself. It's an end in itself. It's not a means. And God himself is beautiful in and of himself. He's not uh, a means to something. No, he is an end. And therefore, we have to have an experience of beauty in our hearts so large it blows out the fear and guilt and pride and self-centeredness. But the question is, how can we have this? How can we? Like this. And listen carefully. When Jesus says, if you love the poor, you love me. When Proverbs says, when you lend to the poor, you're lending to God. When you insult the poor, you're insulting God. That's God saying, 
that he identifies with the poor. Now, what does that mean? At first, I used to think, oh, that's nice. God empathizes with the poor. He has, you know, some sad feelings for them. He thinks about them sometimes. No, this is telling us that God identifies with the poor, and only Christianity tells us how far God went to do that and identify with the poor. When Jesus Christ was born, where was he born? In a feed trough. When his parents took him to be dedicated at the temple, they offered two pigeons, which was the sacrifice acceptable for people living below the poverty line. He grew up in poverty. Jesus was essentially homeless. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. God became poor, can you see? But more than that, he became oppressed. He became a victim of injustice. All the things about Christ's trial, all the illegalities have been documented. Everything that happened to Jesus from his arrest to his interrogation, the time of day, striking him in the middle of the trial, no defense counsel, no public notice given. Everything was a miscarriage of justice. And God went under that system and became a victim of injustice to save unjust people like you and me from all the injustices we do against God and against our own flesh and blood. See, Jesus on the cross lost his peace. His shalom was ripped apart. At the center of Christianity is a poor, and a, we worship a poor oppressed Savior who was a victim of injustice. John Stott, the author of a book called The Cross of Christ, said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? And only Christianity, out of all faiths, says that God isn't and wasn't and never will be. And that's the beauty that'll change you. Look at that. Think about that. Meditate on that. Let it melt your heart down. It'll make you love justice and make you an advocate for victims of injustice. Final thought, John Ortberg, in his book, preaching, or article actually, Preaching Like a Prophet, said this, maybe the most important thing for me to remember is that justice matters because of Jesus. His kingdom is a place where justice prevails, so I cannot love him without loving the justice he prizes. It is in Jesus that justice prevails. The cross was the scene of the most monstrous injustice in history, where the one truly innocent person in history was visited with the sum total of human sin. It is on a cross we see most clearly God's hatred of injustice. It is an empty tomb that proclaims most loudly justice's final victory. And so Jesus' people are called to form a community where shalom prevails. Can you say amen? Let me just apply this. We're going to close a little differently this morning, Philip. You and your team can come up here. Four, listen, many ways, many, many ways you can apply this. Some of you apply this in ways that are far beyond what I'm going to mention here, and that's great. We applaud that. But first of all, there's four things you can do here in this church. Number one, you can be involved simply with our Kai Street ministry. Many of you know we, we minister to the homeless community uh, of Austin. There's some amazing stories happening. Their lives are being changed. But we have actually a specific need. Uh, our ministry there has grown to be more than just every other Thursday. It's actually on Sunday mornings, too, where we host and, and minister to groups of people that come off the streets. And so we need actually 12 people, 12 people this morning, maybe six between each service, that can help on Sunday mornings to give HEB gift cards, to listen to p- their stories, 
to give them clothes that we have in the back of our, our facility here, to hand them some uh, snack packs and some food. So if that's you and you think, man, I'd like to do that, and it's just on a rotating basis, about once a month or so, one service, just to be on the call, to be available, we'll ask that you take that card out here in a moment and you can fill that out. Just put your name, number, Kai Street. We'll follow up with you this week. Secondly, of course, there's our mentoring program that you heard me mention. We do this over at Livo. You can find out how to get involved on our website there at CCC Austin. Uh, all the details are there. 30-minute-a-week commitment, sometimes a bit more, but that's the minimum. Third is getting involved actually with Elevate. Many of our students there, high school students, are victims of a breach in their life. And our team there gets involved. And fourth, just come to what we're calling our, our TGA, which stands for the Gospel and the Gospel and Diversity Meetings. And our next one will be in late April. Uh, we'll give you that information. We haven't quite set the date on that. But just being in a room where a conversation about race and culture and diversity is happening, that just begins in a small ways to bring healing into an area in our culture where we all know shalom needs to grow. Just being in the room helps. So to consider coming to that. So four ways. Again, many of you do many other things besides that. Please don't feel like, man, I'm, I'm forgetting or something like that. This church is amazing. So many of you do amazing things. And I want to applaud you and thank you for all the ways in which so many of you are, are active doers of justice in our city. The church is amazing. So thank you. God, we thank you that you're for us. Thank you that you've overcome. Lord, thank you for giving us the power today to be repairers and restorers of the breach. Lord, God, help our church to be that. Help us to live lives that are authentic in that way. Lord, we long to love you and be in your presence. Lord, now empower us to go out and do justice. We thank you for beauty that transforms us, that stops us, that shapes our world. Lord, we love our beautiful Savior. Give us grace and peace as we go now. In Jesus' name.